Good afternoon, everybody. It's, it's good to be with you. King Xerxes couldn't get to sleep, so he had his life read back to him. I just hope you just don't go on the live stream and listen us back if you can't sleep. But here we are. We're going to look at Esther chapter 8. Again, uh, this afternoon, we looked at a few of those verses at the, at the tail end of our service last week as well. And we brought out the first nine verses or so where we were reminded what Esther started to beg uh, instead of all the plan, planning that she put in, but she started to beg in those middle verses, uh, verses 5 through to 8. But t- today we're going to look at Esther 8, but we're going to look at the reversals in Esther 8, because it is a chapter of great reversals. And we've all seen great reversals in our lifetime, whether it be if we're sports fans, a great reversal of a result where there was a great defeat and you didn't think there could be a possibility of a victory, yet the team was able to win and the commentators will say, We'll never see anything like it ever again, but always there'll be another match, another team, another result, and it will happen again. At least that's what I'm telling myself after Chelsea getting hammered during the week. But there's also uh, reversals in old buildings and paintings, isn't there? Millions and millions of pounds to restore buildings or paintings so that we can get a glimpse of what they would have looked like in times of old. So they're spending maybe upwards of a billion pounds to restore Notre Dame Cathedral, for people to look at it and look at its beauty again. Whether that's a good use of money or not, you can decide, but they're going to be admiring the builders rather than Jesus, so probably not. And then also they spend millions in research looking at lotions and potions, trying to reverse the effects of, of aging or to make ourselves not look as old as we should. And they're all different kinds of reversals. But in Esther 8, I'm going to look at four reversals in this chapter today. The first one is the one we, start, we kind of looked at last week, which we're going to begin this morning anyway. In verses 1 and 2, the reversal of Haman and Mordecai. Haman has been the king's prime minister. He was given an incredible amount of responsibility. He's a man who really wanted this uh, recognition. He was elevated above all other nobles. And as far as we know, and as we have read, Haman was nothing special. He appears to be driven in this desire and motivation to be well-known through the, throughout the kingdom. But of course, this all comes crashing down in on him, doesn't it? Firstly, by looking to kill all the Jews because of Mordecai. Little did he know that he was putting a mark on Esther's head too in that. And then looking to execute Mordecai separately as well. In verses 1 and 2, we looked at it last week, but they show that the transfer from, given from Haman's estate to Esther with Mordecai to look after it, as well as this signet ring of given to Mordecai. It's hard to understand and fathom such importance over the ring and its great weight that it had. But it's like this guy, Gollum, I was correct in the comfort, this is Gollum on the screen. And he is, there's the chase after Lord of the Rings, this ring, don't they? Everyone wants it. People chase after it because whoever has the ring has some sort of greater degree of power. Gandalf says, one ring to rule them all one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them. And for Mordecai, and for him in particular, this is one ring to rule them all. It had the king's seal, as it were. It carried such great weight and importance. This is the first reversal. It's a really important one. Because do, do you notice as we read through Esther, whenever Haman's mentioned, we drop in the Agakite bit, the enemies of King Saul, then they also, in case you haven't figured it out already, the first, first one, you gave Queen Esther, the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. 
just in case you haven't picked that up already as he's trying to kill them all, it's just reminding us. But this is the first great reversal in Esther 8. No longer is it an enemy of the Jews that is second in command, but it is a representative of God's covenant people. It's Mordecai. It's an encouraging sign as we, we step through this chapter that the tables are beginning to turn around. So the reversal of Haman and Mordecai. The next reversal we want to look at is in verses 9 through to 14. The reversal of Haman's decree. In verses 7 and 8, we have seen the king just pass off on his responsibility and gives it to Mordecai. Whatever you think is best, you can work it away. So Mordecai's first job as prime minister was to draft this new decree, a decree that would save and rescue the Jews. Again, last week you remembered that it would have been far easier just to take that old decree away, but that's not possible because the king sealed it and the king's never wrong. But as we read verses 9 through to 14, I wonder if you get that sense of deja vu, you know, something where you think that's happened before. Well, this is what's almost happening here. It's repetitive. It's very similar words to us. If you want to flick back in your Bible, if you're following along with me, to uh, Esther chapter 3, uh, verses uh, 12 to 15, you can cast your eye down some of the, the similar language and what is going on. Uh, in ver verse uh, 12 and 13, is written in all the language of all the peoples, given to the, the satraps, the governors, the provinces, the nobles, the peoples, written in the name of King Xerxes himself, sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women, little children, on a single day, the 13th month, month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And it's issued for, throughout every province. And there is striking similarities, isn't there, in these verses 9 through to 14. There's some of them on the screen. In the way that the, the law had been written, it's written to all languages again. Mordecai directs the secretaries and the linguists to, to get together. They write it again in the king's name with the king's seal. It's delivered by these mounted couriers. Its content is to kill, destroy, and annihilate. There's also plunder in there, and that's something to look out maybe in chapter 9. And it's on the same day. In Esther 8 verse 9, just 70 days or so have passed between Haman's evil decree and Mordecai's decree, they are incredible in how they mirror each other, the process, the language, what's the content of it. But there's an incredibly significant difference, isn't there? Up on the screen are going to come two verses, chapter 3 and verse 13. Haman's decree with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews. And then verse 11, the right to assemble and protect themselves in order to destroy, kill, and annihilate. Haman's order to kill all the Jews. Mordecai's order, protection when attacked. Kill when you are attacked. It's not to go out, ramstam, and kill everybody around you, like Haman's decree, but it is protection. These decrees are strikingly similar, but yet total opposites. Total opposites. And just like Haman's decree, Mordecai's decree has great urgency. He gathers these linguists quickly. He gets the, the quickest delivery system. My mother was lamenting this week about having to send a letter over to my sister in East Anglia. And it doesn't matter if you send it second class, first class, next day delivery, 24-hour delivery. East Anglia postmen seem to just have their own time frame. They're not really that concerned. They're as concerned as the flowers of May, as my mum would say. They're not, it's just 
not going to get it. And maybe some of you tell me it's maybe the delivery system that Mordecai and Haman uses, Domino's delivery rather than Pizza Man's delivery system. This is what's going on here. Because it's going to go out quick as possible. Why? Because it has an effect on all people of all languages in this whole kingdom. God has shown himself to all these people, all these nations, and what he has done through the reversal of Haman to Mordecai. And Mordecai is going to share this good news as quickly as he can throughout all the kingdom that there's a chance of redemption, of reversal of the first edict. And for us, it's that urgency, isn't it, of telling others about Jesus. If only the church, in many ways, was like the secretaries and the linguists and the delivery men with the gospel. Sure, tell people the world, the lost world, as we've prayed already, of the faith we can have in Jesus. But as Mordecai, if we return, tells the people to protect themselves, to arm themselves, for prepare for self-defense, it's not, again, I want to reiterate, it's not a permit for the Jews to go out and kill everybody. Mordecai's degree allows them to defend themselves. It is blatant murder and genocide versus self-defense. What's the difference? This new decree has the ability to reverse the effects of Haman's decree. If you're attacked, you can defend. You can fight for your life. Literally, you can take your stand. It's not going over the top in the response. They could just wipe out everybody the day before, potentially, couldn't they? But Mordecai just reverses it and says, defend. Kill those who attack you. We have the reversal of Haman's decree. And then our our third reversal that we have down in verse 15 is the transformation of Mordecai. And we know Mordecai has been a hugely significant character throughout this book. In chapter 2, we're told that Esther had no parents. She was orphaned, and Mordecai has taken her in as his own daughter. And Mordecai had told Esther not to let on she was a Jew just yet. Mordecai had saved the king's life and has brought Esther to Esther's attention this evil decree but look at how he's been transformed even through those chapters in the book. Okay, in chapter 4, Mordecai had been sitting at the king's gate covered in ashes, wearing sackcloth because of Haman's decree. And you'll remember that Esther sent out clothes to him to tidy himself up, up a little bit. He dressed in a, a mournful way, but only for a little while. And then into chapter 6, as we did with our kids, the king can't sleep. The king asks Haman to honor someone, probably thinking of himself. Haman says, robe him, give him a, a parade through the town, but ends up honoring and robing Mordecai. But even again, after being led through the city, city streets, the man whom the king delights to honor, and where does Mordecai go back to? The king's gate. He just returns. He was dressed like a king, but only for a little while as well. See, Mordecai, the man who... Esther had spent most of his, or the man who spent most of his time at the king's gate, Mordecai, normal man on the street, is totally transformed in verse 15, isn't he? The royal garments of, he leaves the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of linen. What was temporary because of his, his faithful service to the king and uncovering that assassination attempt but now in verse 15 of chapter 8, this is much more permanent, isn't it? He is, has new standing. He has new clothes to wear. He is clothed in such richness and lavishness of the, the very first banquet in chapter 1. 
after the first edict, Mordecai wore sackcloth and ashes, unable to get anywhere near the king. But after the second edict, Mordecai leaves the king's presence, clothed in majesty and splendor, not just the splendor of chapter 6, but now Mordecai is only second to the king. Mordecai is wearing robes of his own. It is a total transformation. He is now identified as a man that is important, a man who has authority. Everything human has through plotting and scheming, Mordecai receives as gifts from the king. What was temporary is now permanent. The reversal for Mordecai is complete. What was temporary is now permanent. No longer is he having to take off his royal robe after being paraded about. You know, these are his new clothes. The sackcloth and ashes during the morning were temporary. But now he has these rich robes of fine linen, of blue and white, of gold, because he is totally transformed. And then the last reversal we see in chapter 8 is the, the last three or four verses there, verses 15 to 17. It is the reversal of Susa's response. You'll mind if you cast your mind back or even look back to chapter 3 and verse 15 and into chapter 4. The city was totally confused whenever this decree was put out. We're told that as Haman and Xerxes sit down to have a drink of their wine, Susa was bewildered. They were perplexed and confused about this decree that was coming from the palace. While into chapter 4, the Jewish people, what were they doing? They were fasting, weeping and wailing, weren't they? There is this pronouncement of death on their heads, and they're fasting, weeping, and wailing. But afterwards, look at verse 15 and uh, 17. How often is joy or happiness brought out in these verses? It must be six or seven times. Uh, in verse 15, there's a joyous celebration. In 16, it was happiness, joy, gladness, honor. Uh, in verse 17, there was joy, gladness, feasting, and celebrating. All happy, good. There was like a carnival festival as Brazil had theirs this week. And imagine the color, the joy that's going through the people because of this edict. The fasting and sorrow of chapter 4 is replaced with the opposites, with the reversal. It's the feasting and joy that they have. Oh, how different is the response of Susa in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 8 and back in chapter 3. The city of Susa held a, a celebration, time of happiness for the Jews, but isn't it interesting that they're celebrating before the day has even come? Are they not just a little bit too eager and too quick to, to be start celebrating yet? How can they be celebrating when they know that you have to protect themselves into the future? Well, they're celebrating because they are confident in the final victory. They have seen the unseen God at work in all these reversals. The reversal of Mordecai and Haman, the reversal of the decree, the Mordecai in his transform, transformed state in this elevated position. And with all the reversals and Susan, as the people celebrate, as they feast, and as they have joyous celebrations, last sentence of verse 17, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. I don't know if they became genuine Jews and God worshippers or they were just fearful of the Jews. But these were people who were not looking for God, yet they saw God. The prophet Isaiah writes this as Paul speaks, I revealed myself to those who did not ask me. I was found by those who did not seek me. 
to a nation that did not call my name, I said, here I am, here I am. These people of other nations seem to have seen God working, literally saying, here I am, look at all that I am doing, even though they were not seeking him. But through all the going-ons in Persia, they have seen God, even when he is unseen. Other nations became Jews, became God's people. You know, people could have kept being neutral, couldn't they? They didn't have to side with the Jews. As if you sided with the Jews, you were bringing on an attack from the enemy, weren't you? And the decree said that the Jews could be attacked, to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. What could the Jews do? Defend themselves. So if you didn't attack, you'd be fine. If you didn't attack the Jews, your life wasn't going to be in danger. But to become a Jew, to become one of God's people, means that you will be attacked. God's people will be attacked. We will be attacked as Christians too. Northern Army don't need military force to defend ourselves for following Jesus. But we will be attacked in following Jesus from our education right the way through our lives. In school, whether we stand up for sexual purity, ethical dilemmas, or creation, as we stand up as God's people on the Lord's day, keep it different from every other day, and get attacked for that, pressured into doing other things. We'll be attacked in our families when we're cut down at the knees and they are harsh to us and don't see Jesus for who he is. We'll be attacked in our business because we won't do that underhand thing that we might be tempted to do. We do not cheat. You know, the persecuted church literally gets attacked and killed. You had a gross... God's people, people outside of the church, join the church because they see God even at work in those situations. God works and continues to work in his people even though they might not be seeking him. So Esther 8, there are four reversals. There's a chapter of great reversals of Haman and Mordecai, Haman's decree, Mordecai's transformation, and Susan's response. But so what? What's that got to do with us? This is many, many years ago. And let me bring us three reversals that encourage us as God's people. The first one is this, the reversal we have in Christ. Ever since the fall, Adam and Eve, we too have been fallen. Death is a great leveler in this life, isn't it? It doesn't matter how old you are, who you are, what money you have or don't have, what you've done, death will come to us. Why? Because the wages of sin is death and will always be death. That is for us. Death will always come to us. That is the law of life, the circle of life, whatever way you want to put it, but it is God's law. That will not change. No matter about all the potential drugs that they can extend life or reverse the signs of aging or slow it down, ultimately, you will die. Our sin kills us. Not only does it kill us in this life, but before God, we are dead in sin. And like death in this life, we can't do anything about it. But we have this hope of reversal in Jesus. Through his death and resurrection, God opens up another law for us, the spirit of life in Jesus. Jesus obeyed the law of sin and death. He took our sin and died, but he rose again. The reversal in Jesus from death to life is irreversible. The consequences for that is immense for us because then we too have this reversal in God's Son. 
one that makes it possible for us who are sinners who inevitably die, die not in sin but in hope of what Christ has done, this reversal that we have, no longer punishment for our sin, but one of God's children. That reversal in Jesus is irreversible, irreversible. Second, the transformation we have in Christ. Mordecai, he was transformed on a temporary basis, sackcloth and ashes, then this royal robes. In chapter 6, it was temporary for him. He only wore them for a little while. And for us on earth, we have temporary transformation in Jesus through God's Spirit. We have different clothes to wear as well. Some of you are dressed okay tonight. But we have different clothes to wear. When we trust in Jesus, we are to be holy. We are made more holy by God's Spirit, which equips and encourages us to flee from these sinful desires, put them to death, and to be reading and transformed by God's Word, by His Spirit. That's pursuit of holiness. Not that we would ever attain perfection, but that we are being changed from the inside out. Transformation is ongoing, but it's only temporary. Why is it only temporary? Well, just like Mordecai in chapter 8, we will be given a permanent transformation. We will be robed and clothed. For those of us in Jesus, we have this permanent transformation, this new heavens and the earth. Not only will our bodies be repaired and restored, but that we will be heirs with Christ. We would have this golden crown on our heads that we would be in the King's presence, never to leave it, always robed and clothed in his righteousness. That is the reversal. Because of this great reversal we have in Christ, we have this wonderful, wonderful transformation in him as well. Finally, the celebration we have in Christ. We have celebration in Christ. Whenever I did one of my first placements way back, I don't know how long ago now, but one of the, the, the man preaching was uh, an older man, and he preached on joy. Okay? And he told us to have joy, joy, joy. Boy, it was a tough lesson. But we do have joy in Jesus. Look at these Jews. They just celebrated for the, even the day came. And we can celebrate as God's people before we see Jesus because we know his reversal is irreversible. His death into life cannot be changed. Our death into life cannot be changed whenever we are trusting in Jesus. How is our response to that rescue for, for us? Here on a Sunday as we worship and then through the week. Every Sunday we are reminded over and over again. We celebrate the reversal we have in God's son Jesus. The reversal of our eternal fate. The Jews celebrated their deliverance, their rescue, even though it still had to come. How much more can we celebrate Christ's death and resurrection if we remember it back? The Jews know the outcome is secure. We have even more reason to rejoice than the Jews had, even more than Mordecai and Esther had, because we know the outcome is definitely secure, for we have seen Jesus. You know, our joy it's not sealed with wax and a ring, like Esther, Esther and Mordecai's, but it is sealed with Christ's blood. Our joy is sealed in Christ's blood. That last paragraph of chapter 8 is full of joy that the people are celebrating now. 
we do that in our singing or our thanksgiving as part of our Christian life because we celebrate that the king is glorified. Though the world does not see Jesus as the one who is crowned, as the one who suffered death and wrath for us, our living relationship with him gives us joy even in the most difficult of circumstances because victory is certain in Jesus. We are confident of that final victory. Our response to the good news must be celebration. We need to be reminded what Christ does for us on a regular basis. For when we are tempted, we drift off. When we sin, guilt weighs us down and it steals our joy. In suffering, whatever that looks like, we lose confidence in our Savior. We lose hope in Jesus. We need to be reminded Sunday by Sunday, day by day, of Christ's cross. Not just on Easter Sunday, but every Sunday. We need to be reminded every day. Because as the Jews celebrated in the city of Susa, it had a great impact on everybody around them. Everyone else seemed to have joined in. So how so, so much more can our joy be infectious to the people around us as we are reminded Sunday by Sunday of our secure hope in Jesus? You know, the gospel has the same effect of Mordecai's decree. The gospel has the effect of joy and gladness to the people who respond to it. They celebrate, even admit so much uncertainty into the future. But they had seen the reversals. They had seen the reversal of, of Haman and Mordecai, of the transformation of Mordecai. They had full confidence in the final result. I don't know if Chelsea will beat Barn in a few weeks' time. I'm not sure what way the Notre Dame will turn out, whether it'll be good or not. But the reversals we have in Jesus, even though we might feel or look defeated, I feel hopeless. We remember the words of the gospel. We remember that this great reversal is guaranteed, secure, and certain. And we have the power to praise Jesus. The hope we have in him is greater than anything we can dream of. You know, our reversal, our transformation, our celebration in Jesus is incredible because it's not sealed like Xerxes with a, a, a passive, fickle, earthly king, but ours is confirmed in the blood of Jesus and his empty tomb. And that gives us joy and confidence, knowing that our reversal and transformation in Jesus is complete, is done. Jesus is that reversal that is irreversible. He can change our sin into life and hope. It's only him that can do it.